um, I will be on mission with my church. This is certainly something that is close to my heart. I believe that God has called all of us to be on mission, and when I hear someone like Josh Freeman pour out his heart, um, I also hear the heartbeat of God through his words, uh, because that is how God feels about the nations. That's how he feels about the people here in Osterville. His heart is for them. He loves them. Now, let's consider this for a moment. Um, I'm sure some of you in this room have read Stephen Covey's uh, Seven Habits for Highly Effective People. And in that book, he, he noted that it's too easy for us to lose sight of why we are doing what we are doing. Uh, you can imagine it like this, you know, uh, you start off somewhere, you head in a direction, but you never really consider what the destination is that you're going toward. And so, as you pursue it, you just somewhat, uh, somehow wind up somewhere for some reason. But you're not quite sure how you got there or why you were there. So he talks about this principle of beginning with the end of, in mind. Instead of expending tons of energy and time uh, going towards a location that you didn't intend to go towards, he says, why not envision where you're heading and the reasons why you're heading there? You know, to avoid these bigger mistakes, it does. It involves asking ourselves deeper questions about principles and purpose, which then informs our mission. You have to ask that about the local church, don't you? What is our purpose? What are we about? Uh, what should we be spending our energies and our resources upon? Covey does a good job of envisioning a person climbing up a ladder, and he says, if the ladder is not leaning against the right wall, Every step we take just gets us to the wrong place faster. So as we consider our church this morning, I want us to engage in a little ladder work. I'd like us to ask the bigger questions. What wall should our ladder be on? How do the members of a church avoid taking steps that just get us to the wrong place faster? And I want to submit that the purpose of the church can be encapsulated by the word mission. Mission. That word means a lot of different things to a lot of different people. However, as Christians, it's imperative that we allow the scriptures to set the agenda for our mission. Uh, we derive our principles out of God's timeless truth. Uh, if we go about the work of defining our mission without God's word, then we will find ourselves disconnected from God's mission. And so this morning, I want to take a look at mission through the lens of the Bible. And as we do that, we're going to uh, first take a big picture look at the shape of the Bible. And I'm going to demonstrate, I hope, in the scriptures that God is on mission. Secondly, I want us to see that Jesus commissioned his church. So God's on mission, Jesus commissioned, and then we want to break it down to the small part of the individual member and ask the question, 
What is my part in God's mission? So let's take a look at this together. Let's begin with God's mission. Denny Spitters, he's the vice president of Church Partnership with Pioneer USA and the co-author of a book titled When Everything is Mission. The idea of the book is simply this. When everything is mission, then essentially nothing is mission, right? If everything is the church's mission, then really the church doesn't have much of a mission at all. By the way, Pioneers is a missions organization that seeks to reach the lost in places that are unexposed to the gospel message. And here is a fun fact. You ready for this? Pioneers was started by Harry Fletcher's brother, Ted. Isn't that amazing? It's just like, you know, Fletcher genes just produce world-class Christian leaders. That's just what they do, okay? So Denny Spitters is the vice president of this worldwide church partnership um, with Pioneers USA, and he states this. The biblical text abounds with enough substantial evidence for some to conclude that taking the gospel to the nations is not only a significant and important theme in the scriptures, but even the overall theme and purpose of the Bible. And I think you can see this as you look at the, the shape or the flow of the overall Bible. Now when you begin back in Genesis chapter 3, we see that humankind has fallen, Adam and Eve fall. Sin is introduced into the very nature of humanity and it's like a, a terminal illness that appears incurable. And in fact, as far as our power is concerned, Sin is incurable. But Genesis 3.15, God introduces the cure. He gives us this idea that an offspring would come from Eve who uh, could be the cure for the terminal illness of sin. So just imagine that. Mankind's fallen. Immediately, God goes on mission. He starts seeking. He starts going about rescuing. We come to Genesis chapter 12. Abraham is given uh, a, a, um, a promise by God where he says that through Abraham, all of the nations would be blessed, that this offspring would come through him. God calls Abraham to form a people, Israel, and their job, Israel, is to be a light unto the nations. Uh, they are called to rightly worship the true God, and as a result of that, if people would see the nation of Israel doing what they're supposed to be doing, then they would also see that Israel's God is glorious. Uh, Psalm 67 the psalmist recognizes this purpose. He says, may God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face to shine upon us, Selah, that your way may be known on earth, your saving power among all nations. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. That's Israel's purpose right there, encapsulated in three verses. But you know the story. Maybe you don't. The story is, that Israel, of course, fails at its mandate. It's unable to be that light unto the nations because they're caught up in the same cycle of sin and judgment that the rest of the nations are caught up in. So in the New Testament, we are introduced to a better Israel, Jesus. 
Uh, Jesus is God's ultimate solution to man's greatest problem. Jesus said this in John 17, 3, that he was sent by God. That word sent has missionary implications. There is someone who is lost. Someone has to be sent to go to them. John 17, 3 says this, and this is eternal life, that they know you the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. And then, of course, we come to the end of the Bible. And I'm leaving out a lot in between. We're just just hitting mountaintops. You with me? So the book of Revelation, right? Gives us a picture of the end of God's mission. Revelation 7, verses 9 through 10. After this, I looked and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne, before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Do you see the the end of the mission? A great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne of God, worshiping the living God together. It's interesting that when you look all the way back in Genesis, Genesis chapter 11 is the Tower of Babel. Nations are judged and they go out. But God redeems diversity in the gospel. The church is a gathering of all peoples from all tribes, tongues, and languages. And the ultimate goal of God is to gather all of those peoples into one, worshiping before him in the throne in Revelation chapter 7. You guys with me? All right. So what does the shape of the Bible tell us? Well, first, it tells us that God has a mission. His primary concern is for his glory. However... When God is most glorified, we are most satisfied. He wants the nations to know him, love him, obey him. And when that happens, it is for our good. We live the best sort of life possible, the most fulfilling sort of life possible when God is glorified through the way we live. Secondly, it also tells us that God is the great missionary of the Bible. Do you realize that the Bible is a missionary book? It's missional. God is revealing himself to people who don't know him. That's what revelation is. Revelation means God revealing himself to people who do not know him. The Bible tells us that God the Father sent God the Son into the world to reach the world. Jesus explained this in Luke 19.10. The Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. So, if this is God's mission, then it would only make sense that the church's mission has something to do with this, right? There's a scene from the second film of the Hobbit series, The Desolation of Smog. Has anyone uh, kind of followed Peter Jackson's films? Some of us, a couple of us. Good. Got some nerds in the room. Love you guys. 
I'm one of you. The desolation of smog, it gives a, a vivid picture of this scene. In the film, it follows that journey of Bilbo Baggins and accompanies uh, Thorin, Oakenshield, and these dwarves who were ejected out of their homeland, the Lonely Mountain, by smog, this uh, gold-greedy dragon that comes in and takes over their mountain. And on the road to the mountain, their guide Gandalf the Grey leaves them to journey through the enchanted Mirkwood Forest, and he warns them. He says this, This is not the greenwood of old. The very air of the forest is heavy with illusion that will seek to enter your mind and lead you astray. You must stay on the path. Do not leave it. If you do, you'll never find it again. No matter what may come, stay on the path. Pretty simple words, right? Stay on the path. You got one job. Do that. At first, they they manage to follow it faithfully, but as they get deeper into the forest, they find it harder to breathe, and there are distractions of illusions that are growing more intense and more real to them, and then they stumble deeper and deeper, and the fog grows thicker and panic-stricken. They look down, and they realize that they're no longer on the path. They've been distracted. They've been taken away from the goal that they had originally had. Well, if the church isn't careful, we can lose the mission path too. You see, there are many noble causes in the world today. Many things that matter. Many things that we should be about But none of these causes are as precious as the church's urgent responsibility. And staying course can be difficult because so many self-proclaimed experts are out there telling the church what the church should be about. This is what you should be doing. We are told that the church's mission should be about being politically engaged and active. Uh, We must band together and speak out on major social issues. I've even heard statements like this. If your pastor doesn't speak about this topic on this Sunday morning, you should just leave that church. They don't know what they're talking about. Okay. The church's mission is to be socially active. Now, we should care about human suffering. We should want to see human flourishing. But... We can't take care of every social concern that exists out there. Or what about the church's mission to be therapeutic? People have a lot of emotional baggage. We should be a place of healing. Again, I'm talking about primary purpose. I'm not saying that the church shouldn't do these things. I've even heard it said that it is the church's mission to engage in creation care. That it's the church's responsibility to steward the environment, to care for it, to advocate for it. Well, that's all confusing. I mean, what are we supposed to be about? What are we supposed to be doing? There's so many concerns and problems in the world that we could spend every waking moment uh, trying to solve them all, and we don't even scratch the surface of those problems. And what's worse is the church gets distracted by the fog of all of those things. They end up walking off the trail 
and losing the actual mission that Christ commissioned to the church. At the end of all four Gospels and the beginning of Acts, Jesus gives us five commissioning statements. Um, They're found in Matthew 28, Mark 16, Luke 24, John 20, Acts 1. And uh, these are very important statements. In his book, Commissioned, What Jesus Wants You to Know As You Go, Marvin Newell makes the case that these commissions were given in five different occasions, five different places, and each with its own emphasis. John's commission was stated just after the resurrection. Uh, Mark, Matthew, Luke, those were stated somewhere after John's statement was made. And then Acts 1-8, you can see very clearly that that commission was given right before the ascension, before Jesus went to be with God in glory. Uh, Newell writes this, without question, these five mission statements of Jesus make up the missional Magna Carta of the church from its inception for today and into the future. He describes their individual emphasis this way. You can look there on the screen. The model, as the Father has sent me, so send I you. John 20, 21. The magnitude, go into all the world to the whole creation, Mark 16, 15. The methodology, make disciples of all nations, Matthew 28, 18 to 20. The message, repentance and forgiveness of sins, Luke 24. The means, you will receive power, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, Acts 1, 8. So what does this mean? What does that mean? The church's mission is primarily a spiritual mission. Christians should care about social evils. We should care about human tragedy. We should speak out when there are institutional wrongs such as racism. We should even, get this, pick up our own trash. All right? You can do that, you can recycle. Those are all good things. But John Piper balances the concern by saying, Christians care about all suffering, especially eternal suffering. Else they have a defective heart or a flameless hell. So our primary concern has to do with the precious gospel message. We are a unique gospel community. Paul says in 1 Timothy 3 that the church is a pillar and buttress of the truth. He defines our confession this way. He says, He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up into glory. Friends, that is a restatement of the gospel. That's the gospel message. That's our charge. We guard the gospel. We proclaim it. We disciple people who have responded to the gospel. We teach them to do the same. We plant churches that preach the gospel. We send gospel missionaries overseas. 
You see, if we fail to do this mission, no matter what other good we do, we will have failed at what Christ has uniquely entrusted to us. And here's another problem. If we fail at this mission, there won't be any more Christians to do anything socially good. Now, some fear that if the church overly prioritizes its spiritual mission, sharing the gospel, that we won't engage in human suffering. But here's what is ironic. It turns out that when the church is most faithful to its spiritual mission, it also tends to do the most social good as well. Isn't that ironic? As we share Christ with people, the most social good comes about. Uh, One sociologist, Robert Woodbury, noted that, and this is what you guys are, you ready for this? Conversionary missionary Protestants. That's what you are. You're a conversionary missionary Protestant. Say that three times fast. No, don't do that. It just simply means that we prioritize the savings of souls above anything else. He says that they have done more lasting social good globally than those who only or mainly focus on doing social good alone. Uh, Denny Spitter says likewise. He says the regions of the world that have seen the greatest democratic reforms in social welfare in the last 300 years are those where missionaries focused most on personal conversion through the preaching of the gospel and least on social transformation. Why is that? Well, Jesus is the answer to all of our social problems. He is the answer. Broken people create broken societies. That's why we need the gospel to change hearts. Without the gospel, broken hearts remain broken. But with the gospel, hearts change. People start loving their neighbor as their self. They start going into the places of brokenness for the sake of sharing God's love with those people and reaching into their lives. Jesus is the answer to social problems. He's the answer for broken homes. He's the answer for failed prison systems. He is the answer for human trafficking, for institutional racism, for the killing of the unborn. He is the answer for all human problems. Do you believe that? Do you? Because government cannot solve problems that are specifically rooted in sinfulness. Only Jesus can do that. Only the Spirit of God can transform broken hearts. So if you want to love your neighbor well, then you have to know what your neighbor's greatest need is. And it's that they need to be in right relationship with God through Jesus. And here's what else you need to know. You also have to know where the command center is for the mission. The command center for the mission is, guess what? Here. The gathering of the local church. One of the big reasons I am preaching this series, I am a church member, is because I am concerned that Christians are unhitching themselves from the local church. Uh, Either this is an intentional decision or it's an subconscious, unconscious decision where 
we've come to a place where we've said, you know, I'm all set. I'm okay. If I just go about my life, I have Jesus, I'll be fine. But friends, this is to our detriment and this is to the detriment of the lost. Why do I say this? As I read the Bible, I understand that the local church is God's missional engine. God designed the church to win Christians, build Christians, and send Christians. It is the responsibility of the membership of the church to do this. My job is to equip you and help you to do this. But it has to generate out of the membership. We have to say that we want to be on mission together. So when you think about mission, and when I talk to you about your part, don't disassociate yourself from the local church. It only flows out of the local church uh, that you would do this kind of mission. I love what our Converge affiliation says. It says, we are better together. Together we outthink, we outperform, we outlast the individual. We're better together. But we also have to remember I have a part. I have an instrumental part to play in this. So let's talk about what your part is. I think that there are certain things that you, the individual member, can do to participate in God's mission. Let's begin with this idea. First, you have to understand where you derive your fuel for the mission. If the church is the missional engine of God's mission, what is the fuel of the mission? I remember, um, and I think I've shared this with you before, I, I worked at U-Haul when I was in college. That was partially how I put my way through college. And there was uh, one Thursday afternoon that stands out in my mind. A woman came back with one of our 17-foot trucks, and she was all sweaty after a day of moving and just out of breath. And she comes in, slaps the keys on the desk, and says, oh boy, that truck sure ain't running well. And I got to tell you, that diesel fuel is sure expensive. And I stop and I say, what? She's like, yeah, you know, I know what these big trucks need. That diesel fuel, that's expensive stuff. I said, ma'am, I told you before you left that this truck needs regular fuel. Well, two hours later, after we had like emptied the engine, cleaned out all the tubes and that kind of stuff, we were able to get the truck running again. I couldn't even believe that the truck made it back to the U-Haul Center after she had done that. You see, fuel... For the engine is a very important thing, isn't it? What is the right fuel for the church? Well, see, for the missional heart of the church, the wrong fuel is guilt. You should be, right? This is what you ought to be doing. And I'm pounding the pulpit. I love pounding the pulpit, by the way. (laughs) I mean, I could preach sermons at you that make you feel bad about yourself. I could be hypocritical and say, I can't believe you spent four or five dollars on that Dunkin' Donuts. You could have taken all that money and sent it to missionaries in Africa and then I'd go to Dunkin' Donuts after church and get me one. But that won't fuel your tank. You might take five bucks and, and, and send it to a missionary, but that's not going to cause you to be missional as a lifestyle. It won't get the engine running. It won't fire the way it needs to fire. It's not guilt. It's the gospel. 
that is the fuel of the church. This is why when you look at the epistles, Paul always begins his epistles with the indicative statements. This is what is true because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's as if Paul is saying when he's starting his letters, look at what you have in Jesus. Isn't it amazing? Can you believe that the eternally rich, universal God who needed nothing from us sent his son into the world to die for us? Do you know how rich you are? Do you understand how much planning God put into his eternal mind in order to bring these events about? Do you understand how seismic this is for your life? The Holy Spirit of God is taking up residence in you. The Holy Spirit is working internally in you to change you to look more like Jesus so that you can be used by Jesus to help lead someone else to him. Friends, you won't be energized to preach the gospel to lost souls if you're not preaching it to yourself all the time. You see, the more you consider the gospel, the more you will love the gospel, the more you will feed on it. The gospel does all kinds of things. It it puts God at the center of the universe, which takes the pressure off of you. One author shares, God is great, so I don't have to be in control. God is glorious, so I don't have to fear others. God is good, so I don't have to look elsewhere for satisfaction. God is gracious, so I don't have to prove myself. It also reminds us that we're eternally loved in Jesus. One of Paul's prayers for you, for the church, is that you, by the power of the Holy Spirit, that the Spirit would give you the strength to comprehend What is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge? And you know what happens when you get filled up with that love? Paul says, it compels you. It sends you out. You're so enraptured by the love of Christ that you just can't help but share it with somebody else. 2 Corinthians 5.14, the love of of Christ compels us. So don't fill your tank with guilt. Fill it with the gospel. Start thinking about how good God has been to you and that will change how you pray, how you think about people, what kind of risks you're willing to take. Another encouragement is to be an especially faithful member. I've got to land this plane pretty quickly. I'm getting over time here, so... We're going to go a little faster, all right? I'm getting a little worked up, so I'll calm down a little bit and we'll just move on. Now, there are times where I hear conversations or I've interacted with missionary candidates and they are just thrilled. They have this very particular vision. I am going to go to India to work with widows and orphans and my intention is to win them for Christ. And I get energized as I hear them talk about this. I'm loving it. I'm excited about the vision. But I pump the brakes a little bit because I usually have one big question. Are you a member of a local church somewhere? Are you regularly attending it? And are you involved? That's a big question. 
And you know what I've heard a lot? No. No. I'm a college student. I haven't been involved in my church. I'm too busy with my school and my work and other obligations. And, you know, the next question I have is, well, how do you expect to be used by God in India, reaching a culture where you don't speak the language, where you don't know the culture, if you're not being faithful here? Dan Lusco has shared this maxim. Past behavior is the best predictor of future behavior. So if you want to be greatly used by God for his missional purposes, it actually starts in rather small and seemingly insignificant ways. It begins just by showing up every Sunday and being a part of the church, supporting the church, praying regularly that God would use the church for his glory, growing in the context of fellowship with other believers and, and discipling one another and loving one another and sharing Jesus with lost people that God has placed in your sphere of influence. Friends, that's just plain, old-fashioned, faithful membership. That's all that is. And the more we do that kind of stuff, that's the pathway that God has put a lot of preachers and missionaries and world-class leaders upon. They started off humble. They were faithful in the things that they were doing now. And God worked in and through them and led them towards more influence and greater platforms. He doesn't tend to bypass his own system. Here's another one. Be an especially faithful witness. Learn how to share Jesus with other people. Uh, it is very true today that most people populating a room like this as an evangelical Christian, which means two things. I believe that Jesus Christ is my Lord and Savior. Secondly, I would share that with another person. Haven't done number two. They haven't shared Christ with someone. Um, how do we do this? I know that we struggle for many reasons. I think first reason is I am afraid. I'm afraid. We're afraid because fear is a normal response to uncertainty. I remember the first time I was working myself up to go share Jesus. I just envisioned someone punching me directly in the nose as soon as I started talking about him or it devolving into a shouting match. But you know what really happened the first time I shared Jesus? It was a great conversation person didn't trust Christ right then and there, but they actually said at the end of the conversation, thank you for taking the time to share this with me. Can you believe it? We take risks all the time, don't we? I, I try new foods. I wear outfits that my wife picks out for me. Isn't she good? <laughs> Some of you daredevils would even get on a plane, go up in the sky, and jump out and pull a ripcord and hope the parachute engages but you feel uncertain about sharing Jesus. Too many of us would rather be unhappy than uncertain. You know what would bring a lot of joy to your heart? If that person you've been praying for and loving and caring about came to know Jesus, and if God used you to communicate that truth to them. So take a risk. Watch them work. Here's another one. I don't know how. You ready for this? I don't know how. You ready? Learn. 
do something about it. I don't know what else to tell you. Uh, there's a great book out there. It's called, write this down. This is a fantastic book. It's called Sharing Jesus Without Freaking Out. You ready? So get that book. It was excellent, clear, challenging, inspiring, practical. We don't have lost friends. This is another one. Um, get lost friends. <laughs> Jesus in Luke 7, right, was a friend to sinners. Four, we overcomplicate it. Uh, we, we tend to envision evangelism being done by this type A personality that isn't afraid to go up and talk to anybody, and they have this gospel presentation memorized that they can just spew out in a moment's notice, and they just win people to Christ. Well, I got to tell you, I think that you can use presentations, but you can also work through conversations, Conversations are a lot more natural to most of us and in the present moment of our culture tend to work very well. Let me just kind of unpack the difference between the two. A presentation, right, starts in our Christian worldview. It assumes some knowledge of the gospel. It's effective with people with a churched background. So they have to know some things about God in the Bible and Jesus for this presentation to work. And it focuses on immediate decisions. Conversations, on the other hand, starts in the other person's worldview. Assumes they don't know the gospel. Is effective regardless of background. Hopes for a decision, a decision but appreciates that this person may need to go through a process before they're ready to understand the full implications of what it means to follow Jesus. I think both are good. Don't listen to this and come out of here saying, Rob says presentations are bad, conversations are good. That's not what I'm saying. Both good. Sharing Jesus, good, right? But I'm finding that conversations are so helpful. In conversations, I listen. I get to hear where a person's at. Now, I do have to have a gospel fluency. I have to know what to say, which means, right, I need to learn in order to do that. Don't overcomplicate it by thinking that gospel conversations just happen because I just kind of, I just shoot Jesus in there at some moment in the conversation. You know what I find is really helpful? Transparency. Inviting someone out to coffee and saying, hey, I'd love to talk to you about your spiritual life. Would you be interested in having that conversation with me? And you know what you get when you do that? You get a one-hour focused conversation where you get to share the gospel. It's fantastic. All right, let's move on. Christian B.O. I remember when I was in sixth grade, teacher came into class. She had a big trash bag filled with little uh, bio, or little deodorant sticks because we stank like a petting zoo. Uh, she said, you guys might not be aware of how you smell, but I want to help you out with this so that you have some friends. <laughs> some Christians have BO too. They're telling other people about Jesus, but do you know what absolutely doesn't work when you share Jesus with people? Just go out and be harsh and pretentious and judgmental and post unkind things on Facebook in love. 
People who don't know Jesus look at that and they say, P-U, so class, I'm telling you, don't do it, okay? You know what people want to know when you're sharing the gospel with them? One, you care about them. Do you care about them? Two, you believe what you're saying. Do you believe it? And three, they want to see the hand of God on your life. Has this gospel changed you? Has it done something in your world? So my point, put on some deodorant. It's very important. All right, let's go to one last point and then we'll land this plane so we can move on. I think one more thing we can do is be supportive of missionaries. Um, This is that passage I was talking about earlier, 3 John 5 through 8. John shares what faithful missionary support looks like. He says, Beloved, it is a faithful thing you do in all your efforts for these brothers, uh, strangers as they are, who testified to your love before the church. You will do well to send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God. For they have gone out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. Therefore, we ought to support people like these, that we may be fellow workers for the truth. So it's very clear that John is talking about missionaries here. And he has a very direct statement. We ought to support people like these. We ought to support missionaries. Support is not money. Okay? Support does not equal just money, though money is necessary and missionaries love your money. So do give. But support involves love, prayer, care, hospitality. You live on Cape Cod, you could give a missionary a one-week beach vacation, right? That's care. You could give their kids gifts. You could spoil them a little bit. Church, if God is the great missionary God who is seeking and saving lost sinners, if Jesus commissioned his church, and if you are a member of the local church, then we all must be willing to say together, I will be on mission with my church. We must have our ladder on the right wall, and we must climb that ladder with intensity. That's what I'm saying this morning. Let's be on mission. Let's go after the mission. Let's see God work. If you're willing to do that, won't you read this statement with me? I am a church member. I worship a great missionary God who sent his son to save the world. Jesus has commissioned his church to win lost people and to disciple them. I will be on mission with my church. Shall we pray? Father God, I thank you and praise you and love you because of your goodness. And I thank you that you are the great missionary God. May our hearts be stirred. May you fan the flame in them to be on mission as a church. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.